suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. Despite the reputation of their homeland, some are remarkably thin-skinned, some seem to have multiple lifespans, a few were once thought to be extinct in the region, others have been observed being sacrificed by their own. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Hello, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. When we talk about news and politics and sex and religion, it's been a couple of weeks since we last spoke to you. So we've got a few things to talk about, a few things have happened, and uh, well, we'll get right into it after the introductions with me, nearly as always, <laughs> when she's not swanning around in Western Australia on some junket of some on sort. On the Swan River. Yes, yeah, swanning <laughs> around on the Swan River. Shay, the subversive, how are you, Shay? Good evening. I'm very well. Thanks for having me. And Joe, the tech guy. Evening, all. Mm. So, Shay, wonderful time in Western Australia. S- <laughs> sampled some wines, did you? <laughs> yeah. That's what I'd planned. I'd planned to go to the AFL Grand Final or at least the bar afterwards. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, police had other ideas, so I got quarantined for 14 days. Yes. So, so anyway. Qantas sent you there to work and then yes. turns out you couldn't work and you spent the That's two right. weeks. Studying. Cooped up. Mm. That's right. Okay. So anyway, well, so it's going to take a bit longer to keep everyone safe and get this border stuff sorted, and yeah, then yeah, we'll have people moving around mm. again. Mm. Well, I guess it wouldn't have been entirely surprising. You would have not have counted your chickens until you actually got out of the airport. Absolutely. So, the mm. whole time, I was just like, "There's no way they're going to let me in." Mm. There's no <laughs> That proved to be the case. <laughs> in fact, they let you in. In fact, I almost cl- – I was like over the moon, yeah. yeah. So the police yeah. said, yeah, come on in. Yep, and then just get tested day 11 and then, um, yeah, missed a phone call from them to say, yep. so actually you no. You didn't get past the luggage carousel. No. They started phoning you. Yeah. Said, hey. I might have made it, but I was in my uniform and I was changing in the bathroom to go to the pub. Yep. Yeah. So if I'd left the airport in my uniform, I might have <laughs> – So anyway, no pub, right. no adventures. Right. Yeah, okay. sat sat in a room. Very good. Well, you're refreshed. Now, last week didn't do a podcast. I just, well, I'm going to do a book review, and I just didn't. It's a really important book, and I didn't feel that I'd studied it enough and was able to give it a good enough sort of explanation. So, less is more by Jason Hickel. That will be next week, and it's very interesting because uh, it gives a nice little history of capitalism. Basically, when we're looking at renewables and the climate change, he's really saying um, we've got an obsession with growth in the West and that even if we get all these things sorted, the just continual growth that capitalism demands means that... Jobs and growth. Well, well, yes, that we're going to have problems. So it gives a really interesting explanation of how capitalism is addicted to growth and that if we continue to just grow, then uh, we'll still have problems with our climate, etc. So hmm. that will be next week. Hello in the chat room, Dire Straits and Bromman. Uh, Bromman, you're still in quarantine. Fingers crossed, not too much longer. So um, also, 
Uh, in other news, so you might remember last year we had our our Black Mass for the Noosa Temple of Satan, which was held at the J, uh, Noosa sort of community hall, and tried to rebook it this year, and they said no because of the abuse that we received from Christians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we called from, our, from loving Christians. We called our staff all sorts of names and threatened them with all sorts of things. So because of their actions, we're not allowing you to book the room again. Mm. So... The only uh, response to that is to is to protest in the streets. So the plan is that we will be um, getting a permit for a street march where we will be marching up and down Hastings Street uh, Saturday night, the 30th of October, and people not, will be dressed up. Not which, just a street march. It's a yeah. Halloween celebration. Well, it? it's a protest about what's happened and we'll incorporate parts of the Black Mass ceremony as part of the protest. Mm-hmm. And then we'll all decamp to a pub afterwards. So that will be interesting. If you're in the Noosa area at all, uh, Saturday the 30th, it will be quite an event. I'll be there. Yeah. Got my outfit worked out. Can't tell you what it is, but <laughs> it's pretty good. I think it's going to be pretty good. All right. So um, so there we go. Uh, all right. Well, what's happened around Australia? Of course, we had the whole uh, Gladys Berejiklian with her sudden resignation and basically following the New South Wales ICAC coming out and saying, hmm, all that stuff that was going on with her and her ex-boyfriend worthy of further investigation. And so she resigned as um, Premier and said, I'm out of it completely, not even going to hang around and wait and see. So Mm. I'm out of here. And... Really, the reaction to that was very measured. Depressing. <laughs> Her reaction, <laughs> the reaction by by journalists, some journalists, by the community, I found mm. really worrying, depressing. It's kind of part of the reason why I didn't even do a podcast last week because, like, I found it all quite depressing actually, yes. because here was somebody who was being. Uh, investigated for corruption and with some evidence there that deemed it worthy and the sympathy that she got from different sectors was quite astounding, I thought. Mm. And you really had to say to these people, hang on a minute, she is the one who is being investigated for corruption and it's her decision to resign and not hang around. And... Mm. Um, so the shovel had put out a piece almost immediately saying, looking forward to Andrew Bolt's, you can't even be corrupt anymore, think peace tomorrow. And then they did one subsequently saying, well, it wasn't just Andrew Bolt, but it was basically half the journalists in Australia. And he's right. So, of course, the, the Murdoch papers uh, excused Gladys. Mm. And I guess no surprise I guess. Um, A typical example was Janet Albrookson in The Australian who said, other leaders stand small in Berejiklian shadow. Gladys Berejiklian can leave with her head held high knowing she led not just New South Wales but the country. Mm. Into a pandemic. Uh, That's right. The the gaslighting Mm. that these people shamelessly do to try and say that New South Wales, even now, this... Perite is saying, well, we're showing Australia, we're leading the rest of Australia out of the wilderness. 
guys, we we haven't been in lockdown in Queensland or mm. Western Australia. People are going to the pubs, enjoying themselves. That's right. It's you guys who actually screwed it up more than yes. anybody. And you want to gaslight us and paint this picture. Well, no, no. So New South Wales didn't go into a lockdown uh, until six months after the virus had escaped. Yeah. <laughs> it was but, a stay-at-home order. Yeah, yeah. Remember? Oh, yeah, that's right, yes. <laughs> she couldn't even say the words. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, shortly after her resignation, maybe it was the next day, was the Sunday Mail. Um, and the, the front page of the headline of the Sunday Mail was bagging Anastasia Palisay, um, saying something about um, her handling of the pandemic. And then a few pages in was an article by Peter Credlin, opinion piece, saying the wrong leader lost their job and saying it should have been Dan, Dan Andrews. Andrews. Yes. It, it bears no relationship to the facts and they're just completely shameless. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, so another example was um, from Shari Markson who said, Lynch mob takes down yet another leader. ICAC has left New South Wales rudderless and has robbed the people of a popular premier at a time of crisis and uncertainty. A law unto themselves, ICAC is addicted to the power and publicity of the bombshell political scalp. Well, yeah, they've got a few scalps over the years, but that's because over the years people have been corrupt. Mm-hmm. And even Berejiklian was saying, words to the effect... Oh, it was very rude of them to do this at this time. Like, couldn't they have waited? Till what? Because this is such an important time for really? New South Wales. Well, it's kind of like the, the Trump impeachment. Mm. They couldn't impeach him whilst he was in power because, you know, he was busy running the country. Mm. And after he had left power, they wouldn't have been able to impeach him because he was no longer president. Yes. <laughs> exactly. But even... Um, uh, my wife's got a couple of friends who shall remain nameless, educated women, and they were like really sympathetic to Gladys Berejiklian. And one even put a coat on her front fence in support. Wow! Yeah, that's what people were doing was putting a coat on their front fence. Do they, they live in New South Wales? No, they live here. Yes, one of them does. Yes, and they're very sympathetic to her. Hmm. And another woman brought low by a dastardly man. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there is there a bit of this sisterly sympathy. Yes, there is. Where they have not looked at this rationally and coldly and and calmly, and have applied a different standard to a sister. Is is that what's happening here? It's it's not so much that she is being held accountable for her, these allegations. It's that so many men aren't right. So that might be where the sympathy stems from, where she's actually been, you know, has to resign. Doesn't Mm. have to resign, but Mm. chose to resign, chose to, Mm. you know, face the consequences more or less, depending on how you – that's just how it was framed, certainly. Even as I'm saying it, I'm like, I don't know, this is balanced. I can hear my own bias, but I can't help it. It's just – yeah, but in New South Wales, they've caught men and men have resigned. Like, yeah. who's the guy with the wine bottle? I can't even remember his yeah. name. Like, there's, there's different, basically, men. She's probably the first woman. I don't know the exact history of New South For Wales' corrupt, and corrupt politics. Mm. So, But there's certainly been enough men that it's not a picking on women issue here. Yeah. In ICAC's um, 
what they've done. So, I mean, ICAC's not perfect, and there have been cases where some people have been investigated by ICAC and had their subsequently... So all ICAC does is investigate, Mm. and then they recommend that the police should prosecute. So there's been some people who have been investigated and then a recommendation that they be prosecuted and then the rec- and the prosecution's failed quite miserably. Yeah. I mean, um, that happens. There's going to be no perfect system. There, that's a pretty good segue though because mm. as part of my white-collar crime and corruption unit, mm. I came across this reading that was, uh, it's 2016, but here are some good suggestions to kind of hone and finesse ICAC. Mm-hmm. So one of them is a, the Commonwealth should appoint, this is for federal level, but they could be applied anywhere. Commonwealth should appoint an independent parliamentary ethics officer. The Commonwealth should appoint an, uh, uh, an ethics officer. So somebody you can go to to talk in confidence about certain situations or particular potential conflicts of interest. Instead of an ICAC? No, or, as right. well as. Oh, okay. So right. imagine... Gladys has found herself in love, oh, right? Yes. She's also looking at seriously looking at giving Wagga Wagga $5 million for whatever the camp was. Oh, yes. And she actually has somewhere to go to hash this out where it won't be used against her right. later. Okay. And she can actually discuss the ethics and what she should do. And the ethics guy or girl might yes. say, you should disclose that straight away and you should absolutely step away from this. That makes sense. That makes sense, right? Yes. So if you actually are serious about the injustice Gladys's face, then these are the types of things you put in place. You yes. have structures because yep. what we're finding is that politicians aren't necessarily exemplary humans. They are just yes. humans. Yes. So the yep. other suggestions were a handbook for mm. not just public servants but for the general public, mm. which I think would be important too mm. because – I think that part of all of this media stuff is they're actually mirroring public sentiment, which they're seeing on Twitter. Yes. Right? And that's partly because a lot of the general public aren't paying a high level of interest into the goings-on. So then they're all shocked and surprised that Gladys has to go. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Some training. I like this. Yeah. And then finally, all of the existing major integrity institutions must be given budgetary security. So you know how we discussed that uh, Gladys started taking the funding oh, from ICAC? I- yes, yes. So um, we've used an example here of defunding, defunding of the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner after the Senate refused to pass legislation abolishing it. So they just cut the funding yep, instead yep. of pass legislation. Yep. So what we should put in place is they're given budgetary security and only the appropriations can be adjusted by Parliament. So there'd be yes, three structures yes. we could put in place to make this, the system fairer. Yes, that's good. So that was that came out of your course as a as what? Yeah. Who so came it's up with a, these ideas? it's a um, the Mandarin's free daily newsletter. Oh, okay. I'm a bit concerned of the source, but right. Now I like yeah. the idea of training, and I like the idea of somebody you can go to, like for example. With the Law Society, they said, you know, if you have an ethical issue, we have someone you can talk to and um, just bounce an idea off or whatever and it won't be held against you. A little bit like the seal of the confessional operating in this case. Like, you know, you can confide in somebody and say, um, 
I better not say this in the Sydney Morning Herald, yes. but... <laughs> yes. I can remember one. They gave an example of this solicitor who was about to enter into a, a romantic relationship with a client and he was seeking advice. And and they joked that by the tone and, and urgency in his voice, it seemed like it was a very urgent response that he was requiring. <laughs> he was on a promise. That's right. Yes. So, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like that. Um, let's see if they take it up. So The, the comparisons, mm. though, with um, Berejiklian and Scott Morrison mm. is we don't have a federal ICAC. Indeed. Mm. Yes. You know why we don't. Yes, because they don't want to pass it. They're scared <laughs> of what they'll find. <laughs> <laughs> well, well uh, according to this tweet from Aaron Dodd, it, it was because Scott Maris, Morrison um, – he said, you know, I talked to Jenny about this. She has a way of really clarifying things. And she said, why would you create a federal ICAC? I don't want to be a prison wife. So that might be why, you know, against Jen's recommendation, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. So um, even someone like Tanya Plibersek said, thanks, Gladys, for your hard work managing COVID and thank you for your service. Who am our Labor opposition? Honestly. That can only be what I said about them mm. just gleaning public sentiment and just mm. cowering mm. underneath it. Mm. So, um, so anyway, um, what else do we have? Um, well, I think you missed the shovel. Oh, did I miss the, the shovel one? Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. So, just been catching up on the latest analysis in the media and got to tell you, <laughs> this person who forced Gladys Berejiklian to have a relationship with a corrupt politician, hide it from the public, give out dodgy government grants and then resign, sounds like a nasty piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, the shovel and the chaser and the Batuta advocate sum up these issues that we face in 10 to 20 words so well, so often, compared to major media outlets. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So um, what do we have here? Um, uh, the Spectator, for example, said, Friday's taking down of Gladys Berejiklian by the New South Wales ICAC is a political hit job. Not your typical party political hit, but a deliberate, calculated decapitation of the New South Wales government by an unelected body determined to prove it's bigger than any mere politician. In moving against an elected Premier, doing her damnedest to steer her state through its biggest crisis since the war, ICAC decided its narrow agenda, fighting <laughs> corruption, and did so, outweighed profound state and national interests. All said with a straight face. Mm. Yeah. So um, um, Essential Poll came out with some stuff today and it said, um, to what extent would you support or oppose the establishment of a sort of basically a federal ICAC? And total support, 78%. Total oppose, 11%. And that's been consistent for... A number of years that they've done the poll. Um, in terms of age groups and sex, um, uh, it's a large majority of all demographics would support a federal ICAC. Um, stronger support amongst those aged over 55 and Greens voters and 
no surprise that coalition voters were the most likely to oppose a federal ICAC. So even amongst the, let's see, the coalition supporters, it was still 77% in favour and 13 against. It's extremely high. So... Um, must be a hard show on your face at the moment being a Liberal supporter, surely. Uh, uh, surely even they must be thinking it is time to clean this up. Well, I'll just say, <laughs> Labor's just as bad. Seriously. <laughs> it's true, they will. It's like, It's the 9% of Greens voters who oppose it I'm wondering about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, thinking about Gladys Berejiklian's resignation, um, which is closer to your view, um, the first is it's made me more supportive of a federal ICAC and the other one is it's made me less supportive of a federal ICAC. And um, 47% say that the treatment of Gladys makes them more supportive of a federal ICAC and 21% say the treatment of Gladys makes them less supportive of a federal ICAC, meaning mm. she was so hard done by they feel that they don't want that to happen in the federal sphere. Come on. One other uh, possible explanation is the mm. optics. Mm. So, I mean, she normally is not unkempt and the mm. day she came out and announced it, she did look very mm. like a victim. Yes. You know, yep. whereas a man might have faced it with some, you know, stoicism or mm. could be some gender socialisation at play. She's pretty stoic though. Do she was, Yeah. She didn't Holding cross. back tears. No, she didn't look. They didn't look, her eyes didn't look moist to me. <laughs> She's a hard nut, I reckon. <laughs> anyway, that might be a, a possible explanation for yeah. the Yeah, the telling thing in that last one actually is the unsure, 32%. That just means a lot of people have no idea mm. about any what, of it. What's interesting is that 54% of men were yes. more supportive but only 40% of women. Right. So they obviously feel that she's hard done by, I think. Yes, that's right. So this resignation of Gladys, correct, made women not as strong in their support of a federal ICAC. There we go. Right. Um, so our new leader, well, the new leader for New South Wales. The good news for New South Wales. <laughs> <laughs> Rub your hands together. You've got a brand new Premier. And doesn't he look good? Dominic... Perrottet. What about premiers? Palaszczuk, Perrottet? Mm. When you've got an awkward name, just add mm. an A at the end of it. Yeah. Shay? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, uh, old, old Anna's name doesn't spell Shay. <laughs> yeah. So there was a photo of him because of the uh, sort of acceleration of the Freedom Day that he brought forward. Um, him and a few of his colleagues standing in a bar having a beer. And uh, it's a very blokey scene. And if you convert it to black and white, it looks very 1950s. Mm. And, you know, as daylight savings just come in. And so I think yes. New South Wales have moved their clocks forward an hour and backwards 40 years. This yes. Is the way it looks to me. So, I mean, people joke about Queensland being full of hicks and all the rest of it. And, and New South Wales, when I look at this photo and I look hey, at your new leader. VAD before New South Wales. Yes, mm. indeed. So 
Uh, not a good look, New South Wales. No. Pull your fingers up. Pull your fingers out and pull your yes. socks up. Yes. Yeah. So what we've got, um, poor New South Wales, they've got a Pentecostal Prime Minister and a hardline right-wing Catholic Premier. But not Opus Dei. Well, not openly and not admitting to it, but he was brought up in a school. Run by Opus Dei. Yes. Okay. And he would have had a lot of spiritual teaching from Opus Dei ministers. Mm. And uh, so, so, no, he's not, you couldn't say he's Opus Dei, but they're a very secretive bunch. They are. And... It's one of those ones where, of course, you're going to deny your Opus Dei because that's the whole point of being Opus Dei. Um, so what we're saying is he's not a universally Unitarian. Uh, he's not what? Universally Unitarian. Uh, so in America, when you're an atheist, but you can't be an atheist, you have to go to a church. Ah, okay. It's the church you go to. Oh, right. Okay. Yep. So who knows? But he's got some views which we'll come to, which... Um, are quite conservative in terms of social things. And he's also got some economic views that are just so neoliberal. It's probably the most worrying thing about this guy. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about... Um, he's willing to sacrifice a few New South Wales people on the altar of... Um, the pubs. Yeah, yes. Of the, the economy. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So um, let's have a look at some of the things that he has said. So... So he's definitely a member of the conservative right-wing faction of the Liberal Party. Uh, he opposed the marriage equality uh, bills. He opposed a bill requiring priests to disclose child sexual abuse. He voted against the introduction of safe exclusion zones outside abortion clinics. He voted against abortion decriminalisation. Wants to stop welfare payments to women fleeing domestic violence as this allegedly contributes to rising divorce rates and single parents' families. Uh, he did a shoddy job managing the eye care programs, uh, which cost New South Wales $3 billion, left workers without compensation. He blames the welfare system for declining birth rates and family breakdown, because uh, if you've got a welfare system, you don't need kids to look after you in your old age, quite literally. That's the thinking there. Uh, yeah, there's no incentive. Stated, quote, there's no incentive to have children if the state will take care of you in your old age. He, of course, has six kids and he's one of 12. Hmm. Um, well, and, with any luck, they'll desert him in his old age. Right. That's right. <laughs> you need to rely on the welfare exactly. state. <laughs> and he praised Donald Trump's election, saying it was a victory for people who have been taken for granted by the elites. <laughs> None of that looks good. No. Taken for granted by the elites like Donald Trump. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. New South Wales, how did you vote this guy in? Oh, wait, you didn't. It just happens, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Roman says, I'm wondering whether the assisted dying legislation in New South Wales has any chance of getting through with the new leadership. Apparently, he has said it's going to be a conscience vote. Who knows? Some people have suggested he's... Is that like the conscience vote that we had on abortion up in Queensland? Yes, I wonder where if you actually did exercise that vote according to your conscience... You'll get kicked out the, of the party. Yes, who knows? Mm. Yeah, who knows how that will go. Interesting one. 
Didn't he need an independent support to form government and that's why he's even... I don't know. Um, I think they're running a minority government there. I'm not sure. Yeah. But um, some things I've read, people have said, look, he's toned down the social moral issues a little bit in recent times. Mm. They felt. Um, but I also heard that Gladys fell on her own sword so that um, effectively the nationals wouldn't take over. Right. Because if she was standing aside... Ah, uh, then the deputy, Barilaro... Right. ...would be Premier. Whereas while... if she resigned, a Liberal got to take Premier, the, yeah, the Premiership. Oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so it was a smart political really? move rather than... Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Maybe we've got it wrong. I mean, maybe it's not so bad. After all, Rowan Dean in The Spectator says, it's not often these days that somebody who is a conservative, a Christian, and a contributor to this magazine ends up as one of the most powerful leaders in the country. So the news that Dominic Perrottet is now Premier of Australia's Premier State is to be warmly welcomed by all who value traditionalism, reason, and freedom. Pop out the bubbly, and if it's Dom Perignon, so much the better. <laughs> Dom Perry Nonford, Dom Perrottet. Yes. <laughs> so clever. Yeah. So lots of people, of course, have been talking about his Catholic faith and what that means to the decisions he'll make as mm -hmm. Premier. And he's obviously picked up a lot of moral ideas from his Catholic faith, one would have thought, and he's going to be making decisions, one would have thought, based on his... Catholic faith. Mm. And some people in the religious groups are appalled that people are questioning and are concerned about this man's faith as if it's got nothing to do with his job. He's premier of a state. He's, he is the guy who runs the ship in terms of lawmaking, laws that are basically about morals quite often. Mm-hmm. He's not uh, just a car park attendant, in which case you're right. He's, if he was, then his religion would be irrelevant. But given the decisions he's having to make, it's entirely relevant to know what his religion is because you get an idea of how he'll make his decisions based on that. Yes. So, so is uh, religious belief relevant? And there was a really interesting article by Chris Stevenson who is a sort of a pro-secular writer in Queensland. I've never met her. I hope to meet her at some stage. Have you ever met her, Kristen? Yeah. So um, she tells an interesting story which sort of exhibits why this is important uh, religious belief in terms of people who are not just decision makers but also just commentators on decision making. So there's a Melbourne emergency doctor, Stephen Parnas, who has become something of a social media celebrity during the COVID-19 pandemic. So he's been tweeting about his direct experience with COVID patients and encouraging people to get vaccinated. So he's an emergency doctor, Stephen Parnas. And this week, uh, our symbolic hero of the pandemic was told he was just plain wrong about the subject of faith and power, and he spat the dummy. So uh, this guy, Dr Parnas... Um, 
vented his frustration that people were making an issue of Perrottet's devout Catholicism. And Parnas tweeted, I can't believe we're back here. Assess any MP on their politics and policies rather than in their religious beliefs. So there's a uh, researcher, Ronnie Salt, was quick to respond and say, oh, dear listener, swear words coming up. Keep the kids out of this on this episode. Um, so Ronnie Salt says, how fucking dare you? How dare you sit up there on your privileged hill of male superiority and tell women not to discuss powerful men's religion? How fucking dare you? Powerful religious men use their religion to undermine the rights of women every day. Good point. Parnas dug in. He said uh, it was an ad hominem attack. He referred to the tsunami of responses he'd got from women. And then in a fit of peak, he announced his departure from Twitter. <laughs> Time to leave this cesspit behind for a while. So, And the classic response to that is, this is not an airport. You don't need to announce your departure. That's it. That's it. <laughs> don't let the door hit you on the bum as, it, as, it, as you leave. <laughs> right. So Chris Stevenson says, Parnas no doubt was also upset by my contribution to the discussion because she had tweeted to him, it seems, why didn't you disclose the fact you were arguing as a fellow committed Catholic? Why don't you disclose this when you're arguing against voluntary assisted dying? It matters because truth is, no matter what safeguards were in place nor how effective, you'd still oppose it because of your faith. Yeah, so because you have hardline faith, it's coloured your thinking on this issue. Mm -hmm. You should have disclosed your Catholicism, Mr Parnas, about these issues. So. I don't see people commenting on Dan Andrews' faith. Hmm. Um, because I comment on it all the time and I say... Are you, are you, sorry, you, it, but you are the rare hmm. outlier yes. because to most people they don't care what his faith is because it doesn't seem to impact his decisions. Yes. His decisions are made for the good of the people of Victoria, not the good of his fellow faith believers. Hmm. So his decisions are actually often contrary to the interests of his faith. Correct. Mm. So that's okay because you go, clearly he wasn't influenced by his faith yes. uh, in a way that was contrary to the ultimate decision. But mm. where people make a decision in alignment with their faith's requirements, then you have a problem. As we'll get on to with Perite, there's a situation with the running of cemeteries in Sydney mm. where independent public service groups have said we need to amalgamate all these cemeteries and have them run by one organisation. Guess what? The Catholics don't like that. That's right. Because they lose power and money. Well, and, and also, where would they hide the funds when they're being sued by sex abuse victims <laughs> if it isn't in the cemeteries? Indeed. So Perite has come out very clearly and told his department very clearly we want to support the Catholics' position when it comes to the running of cemeteries. So he's making a decision that will favour the Catholic Church. So it's important we know... Um, What's uh, guiding what, their decision-making. Exactly. Dan Andrews in that case, was, according to his track record, is actually going, well, stuff you, Catholic Church, you don't get to run the, the cemeteries and you miss out. And so... Uh, his, ca his Catholic faith doesn't really come up except to say, gosh, he made a decision that oh, was contrary. Oh, Dan Catholic? Uh, uh, no, he's, uh, I don't know what he is. He's so, Christian. Just Christian, yeah. I don't know he's Catholic. But your your faith um, 
didn't um, stop you from making a decision contrary to the interests of mm. your faith group. So, well, I mean, a good example of that mm. was eighty um, percent of people support voluntary assisted dying, mm. uh, and I would find it hard to believe that he would vote in favour of his electorate rather than in line with his faith. Mm. And, yes. and therefore there is a deciding influence that I think the public needs to know about. Indeed. It's entirely relevant. Mm. So um, because it's relevant to the job because he's making decisions that affect the, the church that yes. he's a part of. So, um, so anyway, um, let me just get on with this article by Chris Stevenson. So... Um, so, yeah, he had also made comments about voluntary assisted dying. So uh, Chris Stevenson goes on, Before Dr Parnas became a Twitter hero, I knew him as a passionate advocate against voluntary assisted dying. And because I know that most people who oppose voluntary assisted dying do so for religious reasons, I had done some research. Dr Parnas works at St Vincent's Hospital, a Catholic institution devoted to bringing God's love to those in need through the healing ministry of Jesus. In 2018, Dr. Parnas and his associate, uh, Dr. Michael, delivered the rerun Novarium Oration at the Australian Catholic University. The oration was titled, Widening the Door of Hope, a response to the Victorian assisted dying legislation. A cradle Catholic, Dr. Parnas was educated by Jesuits. He remains an active supporter of his alma mater, even sitting on the school's foundation board. And he's also active in his local Catholic church. So, Chris Stevenson said, I had to go looking for that information. When Dr Parnas appears in newspapers, on radio or in parliamentary briefings or rails against voluntary assisted dying, he relies on his credibility as a doctor, never disclosing that the fundamental reason for his opposition is his deep Catholic faith. Just so, when he suggested that Premier Perrottet should not be judged on his religious beliefs, he failed to disclose that he was speaking as a fellow Catholic and political activist. So... People need to know that. Good point, Chris. Very good. Mm. Um, uh, she goes on and I think there's other examples that she gave in relation to somebody else who was talking about um, marriage equality and claimed to be a person of no particular faith, but she smelled a rat investigated and sure enough they were religious so good article on why we need to know and i think um hard to argue um and yeah i've got a link to the article about the cemeteries and well you know i i think um uh we don't need to know about um what businesses politicians are involved in because obviously that's their own personal business and why is it any concern of ours you'd never say that would you no. so, yeah yeah Indeed. And let's face it, these groups are businesses. Yes. These church groups are running businesses. And so he may not be a shareholder because they don't have shares, but he's yes. as good as a shareholder in yes. these groups. So. And um, you remember the dual nationality case with the Catholic Church? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, with back with in the a 50s? member of... Uh, uh, dual nationality with the Catholic Church back in the fifties. I think it was. So, the, do you remember the the scandal a couple of years ago about the Section dual nationality? Forty four, and whether you were a member of the. And so it went to the High Court mm. because they said being a member of the Catholic faith 
uh, effectively their allegiance is to a foreign country, which yes. is the Vatican. Yes. Yep. So back then it was recognised that an allegiance to the to the Vatican was a conflict of interest. Did the High Court actually say that? It didn't say that, right. I think, but certainly it was, it was there worthy was, of going to the High Court. It about. was worthy to go. Mm. Yeah, mm. it was raised as a concern back then. Yeah. So, um, so no, we need to look at his faith, and you know, let's see what he does in that regard. Now, more worrying, I think, is um, uh, yep, yeah, Alison. We've just done that. I'll just look at the comments. Keep commenting in there. So, Perite. Uh, his incredibly, I think, his neoliberalism is going to be more of a worry mm. than New South Wales than his religion, I think. Um, so this was from an article in the Saturday paper by Mike Seckham, and uh, Perite is the whole neoliberal package. So Greens MP or MLC, David Shoebridge, ticks off some of the manifestations of this. So according to David Shoebridge... Um, as treasurer, Perrottet was completely committed to a privatisation agenda, albeit rebadged as asset recycling <laughs> rather than privatisation, asset recycling. So Perrottet oversaw the sale of the government's 49% stake in the West Connex motorway for $11 billion. Uh, prior to that, we've seen the sale of electricity distribution and generators, uh, sale of the land titles registry. Actually, Queensland did that as well. He's had a highly developed plan to sell off all of the state's plantation forests in a billion-dollar one-off deal. But the terrible black summer fires did so much damage to the estate, it took buyers out of the market. Otherwise, he would have sold the state's plantation forests. We don't have enough appreciation of the commons and that the commons belongs to multiple generations mm. you convert the commons into money and blow it on something you've just robbed future generations yes but it gets you elected next time around who cares about 20 years down the line yes mm. it's a, just a it's this pillaging of future generations by the current generation is not recognized by people and also i think there's a fairly good argument that privatization hasn't shown the benefits that were argued back in the 80s. Uh, never does. So the whole thing with that um, disaster with – because they've got to make a profit. They have to do everything that the public service would have done in terms of provide service but then make profit on top of that. Mm -hmm. You've got to do more with less. Mm. Obviously, standards of service deteriorate. Well, the yeah. argument is that civil service is mm. so inefficient mm. – that the profit is made from making the thing run more efficiently. Yeah, but particularly when it comes to monopoly-type stuff, electricity, water, these are not things that you put in the hands of private enterprise no. who can then screw you over. These are things as a society we need to That's own. That's right. Yeah. Right. Um, so according to Shoebridge, uh, he's a very aggressive privatiser. The only real constraint is that so much has already been sold off like Labor and Liberal governments, there's not much left to sell. So, um, uh, so yeah, with the public insurer iCare, um, he got it to operate along more private sector market-based lines and it developed a $2 billion hole during his watch, which saw thousands of injured workers inappropriately lose their benefits. So, 
Um, so, yeah, if there's something to sell off, he will. Now, what he also did was uh, he got the Treasury, the New South Wales Treasury, to um, borrow $10 billion at very low interest rates that he just invested in high-yielding stocks and other financial assets, which is basically just gambling with taxpayers' money. Mm. $10 billion loan, a cheap interest, and then went and bought a few investments with it. So Saul Lake is not impressed. I really like Saul Lake. And that's Eastlake. all right. Treasury did it. So it's... Wow. So... Um, I really like Saul Eslake. He is a good uh, neutral uh, economist, I reckon. I saw him speak live once at a lunch and I just came away from it thinking, wow, is that guy in charge of his brief? Like he he is a smart guy, Saul Eslake. So, When's the uh, last time you had that experience when you watched a politician talk? Oh, Saul Eslake's not a politician. I know. So, yeah. uh, we have so many great people in Australia. Hardly any of them seem to be in politics. <laughs> Last time I was impressed by a politician for just being super bright on something. Yeah. You, you know, sometimes Malcolm Turnbull said things, mm. but he never put it into action really. Mm. But, but after Tony Abbott, when Malcolm Turnbull came in, it was like, oh, finally we've got somebody in charge here. Who's eloquent. Who's not, embarrass- <laughs> who's not embarrassing. And he spoke and you thought, that all makes perfect sense. But, of course, mm. what subsequently happened in action didn't meet the promises. I, I rem- uh, th- remember thinking that um, the best Republican um, president that the US have had, has had in years right. um, was Obama. Yes. He was all words. Very eloquent. <laughs> he, he was incredibly eloquent. <laughs> it's true. But he was a right-wing politician. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah, indeed. So in terms of one in power who, who is impressed as being totally over their brief, uh, let me think about that one. Okay. But can you think of one? Not, no. Not lately. No. Maybe Not Penny Wong. So, I don't know about, yeah, Penny Wong maybe. Does okay. seem to be across her mm. portfolio. I don't know yeah. about impressed, mm. but certainly. Mm. Um. So what else has uh, Saul Eslake got to say about Perrottet? Um, he says that's a risky thing to do. Although one thing he's looking at doing is... Um, he's, Wouldn't go like Iceland then? Uh, what about Iceland? Oh, they put all their money in... No, sorry, it was the UK councils that had put all their money into the Icelandic banks that went... Right. ...collapsed during the financial yes. crisis. yes. But the Icelandic people actually were the only ones on the planet who, who really took on the managers in charge of those banks yes. and, and punished them and really said, we're not going to let that happen again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. They were, but, but it was, you know, um, governments gambling with money. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so Saul Eslake says that's dangerous, although um, Perrottet wants to change the GST formula. He says Western Australia is grossly overpaid and Saul Eslake says fair enough they are and that's a good point by Perrottet. So um, so he says, yep, that's a good point. Also, um, what else does Perrottet want to do is uh, currently there's a lot of stamp duty on land transfers. 
and he's saying we should get rid of the stamp duty on land transfers and instead put an annual land tax on everybody, including dwellings that you own. So rather than collecting tax on the transfer of property, just collect it on owning property. Makes sense. Yeah, and well, like apparently, rates. Um, like rates, but a government rather than a, a state government bill rather than a local government bill. Yes. Yeah. Land tax. There's currently land tax in Queensland and other states, but you have to have a significant amount of uh, property that is not principal place of residence. Mm-hmm. Then you start getting a land tax bill. Right. Happy days when you can get a land tax bill because you... <laughs> Because you you're, you're doing all right. Because you're doing all right. <laughs> uh, unless you're the federal government. Yes. So, um, because uh, oh, they don't get any of that. No, no, but, other way around. Um, a friend of mine is up near the new army base or the extension of the army base up in Rockhampton. And apparently there's a whole load of farms have been resumed. Right. To extend the army base. Right. And the, the local shire has lost... Ah, $2 of million dollars of rates a year. Of course, because it's now owned by the federal government who won't pay rates. Mm. Yes. Yeah. That's it. Yes. There we go. So mm. it was a huge hole in the budget. Mm. Interesting. Um, also, um, so yeah, Salt S. Lake says nearly all economists agree that's a good idea. Get rid of the transactional stamp duty, put in a annual land tax. I thought there was a, a talk of putting in... Um, Stamp duty on possibly share trading to try and stop right speculative trading. Oh, lots of people put it up as a good idea, but I've never heard any government actually. Right, but I mean, mm. was there a reason that land you have stamp duty on land was for a similar reason? I don't know. Or how just it because came they about. could. It was just easier. I don't know the histori- the history of it. Right. Yeah, and yeah, I don't know. Shares probably did have some sort of transfer tax at some point, but mm, not sure. And, of course, the other reason not to is because stamp duty is paid when you have cash in hand. Yes. Whereas a, a land tax, you may actually be asset rich rich and cash poor. Yes, that's right. It's a risky, bold move if he does it. Mm-hmm. So, but he seems to be a bit of a risk taker. I mean, he's happy to take a risk with the state's finances on that loan. So, uh, interesting character. Not his money. So, yeah. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, voluntary assisted dying. There's an independent Alex Greenwich. Greenwich? Greenwich? Greenwich. Greenwich. He's going to put up a bill and Paratay has said it's going to be a conscience vote. So, that will be interesting to see how that all pans out. By the way... Uh, voluntary assisted dying in Victoria. How's it been going? And um, it's been in effect for more than three years in Victoria. And there's a report from Victoria's Voluntary Assisted Dying Review Board. And it says during that time, 836 people have been assessed as eligible for voluntary assisted dying. Uh, 674 permit applications were made. Um, 597 permits were issued. Not sure what the difference is there. Uh, The big important number is 331 people have died from taking the prescribed medications in Victoria. Not a huge number, but 
kind of what you'd expect, really. Yeah. One every three days. So, um, so there we go. Um, Dan Andrews is going to bring in secular qualified mental health practitioners in every government secondary school as opposed to chaplains who have to be from a religious organisation. Good on you, Dan Andrews. Yes. Um, did you see the story about the, um, the artist, um, Jens Harning? Um, so he's a Danish artist. Just a little light change of pace here, dear listener, from all this depressing stuff. <laughs> this is somebody fighting back the system. Yes. So, um, so Harning created uh, two artworks in 2007 and 2011 where he affixed banknotes onto a canvas as a commentary on the average incomes in Denmark and Austria, respectively, in the Kunsten Museum of Modern Art, Love Them. And they offered them hidden the equivalent uh, of $3,900 to remake both of those um, uh, canvases. So they provided him with $115,000 worth of cash to put on the canvas and they were going to pay him basically $3,900 for his fee. And when they unwrapped the canvases, they were met with two completely blank <laughs> canvases titled take the money and run <laughs> <laughs> so the uh the art gallery or whatever it is um museum of modern art uh they're suing him now but he doesn't care he's not paying it back he said the work is that i have i have taken their money or the word is i encourage other people have been working conditions as miserable as mine to do the same if they're sitting in some shitty job and not getting paid and uh actually being asked to pay money to go to work, uh, grab what you can and beat it. So <laughs> that would be tough as an artist. It's like, man, yes. you're only paying me $3,900. i have got to do all this stuff. And blah, blah, yes. like you, Meanwhile, you're happy to give me $115,000. to stick on the bloody cash. canvas. Yes. <laughs> you, you would actually have the money in your hand and look That's at the right. canvas and go, get, what nah. am I doing? <laughs> New idea. Yes. Take the money and run. <laughs> yes. And you keep me an eye on the messages for me, Joe, um, if you can. Alison and Bronwyn are having a good chat in mm -hmm. there. So, um, uh, oh, Alison says, I don't think Dan Andrews' announcement about secular professionals will affect chaplaincy at all. I am sure it's a totally separate thing. Um, Bronwyn thinks it's being offered as an alternative. Anyway, we'll get further details on that as they come to hand. Um, lots of different people saying goodbye to Facebook. So Reason Australia was did an article about Fiona Patton, who basically said there's just too much nasty commentary that it totally spoils the page and too hard to deal with, and so we're just out of here. No point having a Facebook page. Nope. Find some other way of dealing with it. Yep. That's not surprising. Well, it does seem to be getting pretty ugly. Mm. There's been no resolution yet of the whole thing with people making defamatory comments that the owner well, of a page... Facebook was, took themselves down for a while, so... Facebook took themselves down, right, yes. Solved that problem. Yes. Um, but the government does recognise that it's up to them to change the law on that one. So mm. they're trying to get the states to agree to something on that. So 
that's going to be a legislative solution to that one. Um, here's stories of people going missing and searches are sent out looking for them. So um, there was this guy in Turkey who went missing. I heard about that, yeah. And um, uh, he'd been drinking with some friends and he wandered into a forest and when he failed to return, uh, well, he's out in the forest and he's going, Jesus, I'm lost. He sees this group of people walking along and he says, I'll just, I'll just tag along with these guys and eventually I'll be led to, you know, out of this goddamn forest. And he's walking along with them for about half an hour or so. Then they start calling out his name. And he says, I'm here. What? And they were a search party looking for him. I, I, have a, I actually have a similar story. Really? Yeah, yeah. We went to a, a beach on Jersey which was down the side of a cliff. Uh, and we came back and we picked up the car in the car park on the main beach towards the end of the afternoon and we saw the lifeboat go out. Oh, right. And we went down to have a chat with them and they said, oh, yeah, apparently there's a family stuck in the cove around there and the tide's coming in and we're really worried about them. And we go, that was us. We climbed up the side <laughs> of the cliff. <laughs> There's a footpath up the side of the cliff. At least you didn't join the search party <laughs> in the <laughs> boat. <laughs> I wept Until... with laughter when I saw that. So good. And then you're in the boat. Joe! Yeah. <laughs> what? Oh, it's me you're looking for. Yes. <laughs> right. yeah. oh, that would have been funny. Um, Jessica Rowe. So she has a podcast. I think it was a podcast. Mm. I mean, who doesn't have a podcast these That's days? That's it. That's right. When you tell people you're on a podcast, they go, eh, everyone is. Well, I'm lucky. I seem to be an age demographic where right. it's still pretty rare. Right. So, yeah, it's people are impressed. Because you hang out with old people. <laughs> That's right. Old white men. <laughs> Hence, you're on a podcast. I usually leave that part out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she had a podcast and she had um, – well, she's obviously trying to appeal to a leftish type of audience, I think. And she made the mistake of inviting Pauline Hansen onto the show and doing a bit of a soft interview, I think, because Pauline talks of love, raising kids and why she keeps going. Um, but a lot of people tweeted back at her saying, what the hell are you doing giving this woman a platform, essentially? And she then contacted uh, her bosses and said, eh, can we drop that podcast and delete it because I've felt the heat from all this. So what do you reckon, Shay? Is that is that uh, cancelling or is it anything to be concerned about or have you got any thoughts on, on her succumbing to the backlash from the community? No, I just think mm -hmm. um, Grace Tame lands her communication with a real clang. Mm. Yeah, and I just think she's super, super powerful. And I don't remember the exact quote, but it came out almost immediately after Rose. And it was just like sometimes when Grace talks, it even for me, who I seem to like think I'm pretty up to date, it's like being slapped across the face. It's so obviously, you know, impactful mm -hmm. that Jessica Rowe was doing this. So okay. I think Jessica Rowe bowed to pressure, fine. Mm. She should have... Maybe prepared for some backlash. You're mm. going to have Pauline Hanson. Mm. Like, Pauline Hanson's made a career out of being controversial. Mm. But, but I it was think, never just going to slide through, was I, it? I, I think it's important not to see people with opposing political views 
as monsters, mm-hmm. which is what happens when you isolate them, when you don't hear them. Mm-hmm. And in some ways it is important to realise that these are real people who might be misguided um, but still think they are doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it becomes a lot easier to come to bipartisan agreement and the problem is we are too divided. We see the other side as the other mm-hmm. and we don't sit down and talk to them. Mm-hmm. I guess the counter to that would be that Pauline Hanson has plenty of opportunity to demonstrate to people her humanity. her humanity. So if she hasn't managed to do that in the forums that are offered to her already, why take up space on a forum for her? Be- if she... Because if she's showing it in a forum, it's ne- necessarily going to be a right-wing forum that the left pe- left-leaning people aren't going to hear. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this to me is a little bit like um, George W. Bush. Mm-hmm has been on a lot of programs post his presidency where they've gone soft on him and there's been almost a rehabilitation of George W. And uh, he's a nice guy, he's an ex-president and we'll forget all that stuff about the Middle East and and just uh, going soft on him. I, 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 I sort of think... Why? He's had his chance to put his views out there. Um, Grace Tain, let's see what she said. She said, This is how discrimination and hate is subtly enabled and normalised. Everyone's entitled to their own view, but not all views should be valorised by promoting their source. Pauline doesn't need to be heard, but those whose oppression she's both driven and reinforced do. So that was... um, that was Tame. What's her first name? I've got her first name. So, isn't it Grace Tame? Grace Tame. So, uh, from Sean McAuliffe, he says, "Isn't this a story about the triumph of free speech? Roe asks the questions she wants. Hanson gives the answer she wants. People get to rail against it, being a podcast. Roe gets to change her mind, and we get to express our opinion about it. Suppose <laughs> it's working. Yeah." <laughs> Like, at the end of the day, uh, Rose free to make a decision and she's also free to decide, shit, that didn't work with my audience, I'm mm. going to pull it. And the audience is free to say, that's a really shitty interview and if you want us to listen to your interviews in future, don't put this shitty interview stuff on. Yeah. And um, Pauline but gets to say... Was it God her did. audience or was it a wider public? Well, or political commentators. Who, who will know? I guess she saw the comments from people she perceived as her audience. Was she clear about the aim of having her on? What's the aim of Jessica Rowe's podcast? Uh, Have constructive conversations or yeah. talk about cooking? Or oh, I don't know exactly. But and maybe she doesn't either. Yeah. Um, uh, well, in her tweet... Telling people about her interview with Pauline Hanson, she says, um, um, let's see. So I didn't talk anything about her life in politics, but delve into her life outside of parliament. And she talks love raising kids and why she keeps going, Roe tweeted. So it's basically saying a look at the human side rather than the political side of Pauline Hanson. 
I mean, I think it's as important as the mm. book The Banality of Evil, mm. which is a uh, is literally a history of the guy who ran the train lines in the Second World War. Was it Hess or something like that? No, no, no. Mm. It was some civil servant who right. just ran the trains. Right. The problem was the trains were full of Jews going to the concentration camp. Right. And it was how banal this job was, and yet this man literally transported or was in, yeah, involved in transporting millions of people to their deaths. Right. Was that when he was in the dock at the Hague or whatever it was? I thought that was what the banality of evil was about, was about that oh, one possibly. of the key, Goering or Hess or somebody, no, 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 was I... such an ordinary-looking character, banal, and yeah. it was so evil that just looking at the man in the witness box, he just looked like some dull accountant, and it seemed I incongruous it that um, he was something else. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, anyone in the chat room have an opinion on that one? Let us know. Mm. I kind of agree with Sean McAuliffe on this one. Free speech. People can say stuff, people can complain about what people say and people can make decisions. And um, I really personally think Pauline Hanson gets enough chance to uh, show her softer side on any number mm. of times. So, um, Netball. I don't think we've spoken about Netball much on this no. podcast over the years. Yeah. Netball, here's my theory on netball, is yeah. if you were to invent netball today, you'd never get off first base because creating a sport played on a hard ground where people have to stop within one step is just is just destined to create knee and ankle issues for mm. people. Like it's um, not a good idea. So anyway, Netball Queensland has been accused of turning uh, its own championships into a farce you want to tell me about banality of evil? No, I go, uh, I no. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> before it, I go it, on. It's saying it's Eichmann in Jerusalem. All oh, right, okay. So it was a Jewish uh, yeah. reporter right. who covered the trials. Yeah, yep. And essentially he was like an accountant and seemed quite ordinary. Well, and saying the fact that he couldn't even string a sentence together. Yes. Mm. Uh, and couldn't believe that this was the, the evil architect of mm. destruction. Yes, yeah. Well, there's a lot, you know... Pauline Hanson can hardly string a sentence together. Well, the, the, the analogy's starting to whoop. I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm starting to see the analogy here, Joe. <laughs> I'm starting to see. Okay, back to the netball. So um, Netball Queensland are accused of turning its own championships into a farce. Essentially, they allowed an under-17 all-boys team to compete in the under-18s championship. And the boys essentially thrashed them and the crowd got quite irate watching it and nasty comments made from the side and um, they don't have a state championship for boys due to player numbers. So they won their seven games by an average of 29 goals and the closest contest came uh, in the semifinals when they beat the opposition by 23 goals. So, um, Shay, any thoughts as a representative of women's netball? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I've been this height, which for the listeners is 172 centimetres since I was about 13. 
um, and I got very broad shoulders. So my parents had hoped I'd be a swimmer. Goal defense. But I wasn't a swimmer. <laughs> so netball it was. So I was goal attack for like many years, representative, and absolutely my knees and ankles are kaput right, okay. as a result. Yeah. And um, I think the obvious solution is mixed netball. There was a boys' team played just, against my daughter um, under 14s, I think. Right. A couple of years ago. Same age? So under same, 14 boys against some. Uh, yeah. Yep. Um, and they play an incredibly different game. Yes. Yes. They, uh, it's just watching them, having watched girls play time and time again, to watch an all boys team on the court was so different. Mm. Yeah. Um, they, over a third, those types of rules. They, uh, they, they, they were just, I don't know, they, they were more physical. Yeah. Mm. And, and not pushing each other because it's a no contact, but um, they, they were more aggressive in the way that they went for the ball. Um, they just played a very different game. Mm. And it is, I don't know what the answer is because obviously they have to be able and maybe, as you say, mixed. Yeah, well, certainly uh, I always played with girls until I was 17 or 18 and then did mixed netball. And that was a hoot, mm. you know, and it did actually sort of balance the kind of physicality versus the, you know, um, practice technique of women mm. who'd played for years. That mm. seems like the obvious thing, having one boys team play against the girls. I'm not sure that that is, you know, it, like, striving for equality. Yeah. I, I, th I think solutions could be, well, at least the, the girls team who made the final should have been declared the netball champions for that year, like yep. should have got the trophy perhaps. Or what they should do is maybe say to boys, uh, you know, drop down three years, like you have to be under 15 boys against under 18 girls or something or whatever mm. level you need to go down to make it a fairer contest. Yes. They obviously didn't do that in this case. Yes. Um, and really, or let the boys compete, but say, well, you don't get to go into the final because you can compete in this, but um, uh, but you don't get to go into the finals. I don't know, mm. but um, maybe just make them young enough so that it evens it up. But mm. that was just crazy. That's just crazy. Do you think it'd still be appealing to boys with all those extra limitations, though? I, I, well, if 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 it's only well. It's it's hardly appealing if you're flogging people. Like, <laughs> that must be a bit tough. It's not. It's actually no fun in sport yeah. to be. Uh, you know, I've played competitive squash for years, and if you're in the wrong grade and you're killing everybody, there's no fun in that either. <laughs> no. So you want, and that's what they should learn. So, mm. um, yeah, I know that the professional teams play against men in their training. Mm. So the Firebirds and that will play against some men's teams in their training. Mm. Mm. So there we go. We learn something every day. I didn't That's know right. that you were a netballer. And yes. I'm, I'm happy that my theory on knees and ankles <laughs> stood up. True. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I've also got a theory about netball referees. Are they called referees or umpires? Either is fine. They're really wannabe Nazis. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I yeah. never made a good umpire. I never played. I was played like, ah, let it go. Yeah. Oh, was it a step? I, I, yeah. And particularly you see them in mixed netball. I've never played mixed netball, but I did. I've watched a little bit with my kids at different times or just caught it. And where there's guys who have obviously never played netball before and they're in a mixed team and they've got that ungainliness about them, the umpire will pull them up on a stepping call that just isn't there because mm. they just don't like the look of this ungainly guy um, and they just love blowing that whistle. They're <laughs> yes. shockers. They love blowing the whistle. Yes. I think they take it to, upon themselves to be mm. fairer, like especially for the taller, leaner ones because even though they are standing 1.5 metres or whatever, three mm. feet, mm. they look like they're up nice and close. So yeah. just, yeah. Yeah. They take it upon them, so they take their job very seriously as umpires. Yeah. yeah. If I had a son who was looking to start a relationship with a netball umpire, I'd be very worried. <laughs> be warning him against it. <laughs> um, in terms of the knees and ankles, mm. I believe it's the sudden stop. It's the no mm. no travelling rule. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um that I heard from a physiologist is actually very, very hard. Yes. And, in fact, in professional netball, they have to learn how to stop correctly so that they can stop without doing the damage. Mm. Um, and, and it's the kids long-term, if they don't get that training, end up mm. with major damage. Mm. So I've played a bit of frisbee, so ultimate disc frisbee, and when you're running and you catch the frisbee, you are allowed to take three or four minor steps, like just to pull up. You don't have to do it within two steps. Like if you're running flat out in a certain direction, you catch the frisbee. Mm. You are, there's no rule about a precise number of steps that you have to pull up in. Um, it's just you try and do it in what is a reasonable amount of pull-ups time. So yeah. I haven't seen that game. There you go. Yeah. So you have to look that one up. I will. <laughs> so you have to run. It's it's parallel to each other, or uh, kind of like a field. It's it's like um, how would you describe? It? People are spread out. Yep. And so there's no offside, so you can throw the frisbee way forward. Um, and mm. when somebody catches it, they then throw the frisbee to somebody else way forward, and you and you score like a touchdown in an end zone. Is how you cool. score. Yeah, it is a really good game. Yeah. Mm. So. Um, you catch the frisbee and take three or four or whatever necessary steps, depending on how fast you've been running. Mm. Right. Um, There was an article uh, in the quarterly essay by Lech Blaine, and um, I've got a bit of an edited extract here. So uh, it was titled The Larrikin Myth, Class and Power, and he says, Scott Morrison, a Pentecostal rugby union fan from the eastern suburbs of Sydney, plagiarised the identity of men like my father. The career politician reinvented himself as ScoMo, a rugby league-loving everyman from the Sutherland Shire. Why would a white-collar toff camouflage as working class? For power, Australia is divided between cosmopolitans and parochials. The cosmopolitans well-educated and affluent, are concentrated in Sydney, Canberra and Melbourne. Parochials are located on the fringes of cities and in the regions and are far less likely to have a university degree. 
Professor Megan Davis says, class is the last taboo. Clever progressives buy into so many negative tropes about poor and uneducated people, and they would do it to no other group of marginalised people. And this writer says, my brother John comes from the underclass. In 1985, his biological parents were sent to Boggo Road Jail for kidnapping. John was placed into foster care with my publican parents in Rosedale on the outskirts of Bundaberg. University was never for him. He became an unskilled labourer before working as a bartender. John beat all the obstacles in life to become a successful car salesman and a loving father. Nobody in his social circle attended university. Unlike our dad's generation of labour voting larrikins, John's vivid lived experience of Australia's class system inspires him to vote for the Liberals. John Howard deployed the symbols, values and vernacular of working class culture to attract jilted battlers from Labor's blue collar base. Scott Morrison won the 2019 election by pretending to be a Howard battler. And his brother John says, every human being just wants to be respected. So when you come across someone who doesn't judge how you look or talk and who doesn't care if you have a university degree, it's dead set one of the nicest feelings in the world. And um, says here, the contempt he feels emanating from progressives isn't an anecdotal anomaly. At the 2019 election, Labor attracted an average swing of 3.78% in the 20 seats with the highest percentage of university graduates. So that was in Labor's favour, 3.78%, where there's the high percentage of university graduates. In the 20 seats with the lowest percentage of university graduates, Labor suffered an average of 4.2 swing against it. I've mm. never heard that statistic before. No. It's a really interesting one. Mm. Really interesting. So I've heard similar coming from the UK. Mm. That, that Labor has become a party of social justice mm. um, and not the working person, the yeah. working man. So we've talked about this a lot over the years, but I'd never heard that statistic for Australia mm. about, um, about that. Um, there we go. The 20 seats were the lowest percentage of university graduates and Labor suffered a swing against it, 4.2%. Interesting. That's really what Labor needs to be very aware of that if they're going to win. So um, – he says here in this quarterly essay, Australia, a nation of self-proclaimed straight shooters, has been hijacked by a pack of fabricated larrikins and bona fide bullshit artists. I reckon that's right. Mm. Um, uh, for a quarter of a century, Australia's conservative establishment has profited from pitting working-class battlers against the inner-city elite, coal mines against universities, larrikins against feminists and gays, Patriots against Aboriginals, Muslims and asylum seekers. So Howard and Morrison have successfully offered the coalition as the natural home for parochials who want to cast a protest vote against the snobbery of cosmopolitans. And the question is, what do progressives do next? So lots of food for thought there. No disagreement from me. And uh, What if they just abandon workers? Well, they did, but like. But I mean, have they? I mean, yeah. frankly, you can probably um, thank the unions for these six-figure pay salaries that the 
working people or as as this article goes on. Historically. It's people that do FIFOs and stuff, yeah. Mm. And that's been gradually being eroded by this casual contract style thing instead of secure work. Mm. So if they're really if they're really clear that they want to vote liberal and Dominic Perrottet's obviously and his uh, and the federal government of liberal are not appealing to the women's vote then maybe that's what labor does wouldn't it be great if we had a party that was obviously appealing to women's votes yes it would be <laughs> great and aren't and we 52% of the australian population so, because uh, isn't isn't it a fair? Wouldn't it be a gamble? It'd be a gamble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what you're getting onto is the second part of this article from Crikey. I'll I'll, I'll talk about mm. this and then we'll recycle cool. back to where we are. So, right. the second part from Crikey said, looked at this article in the quarterly essay and said that um, the structure of blue collar workforce itself has changed with tradies at the vanguard. So. Over the past 30 years, many tradies have grown increasingly wealthy, likely to operate small businesses, likely to own their investment properties. So their interests no longer neatly align with collective labour as their economic power rivals and sometimes exceeds that of white-collar workers. So um, in this crikey article, it says, so should the left give up on blue-collar blokes? Of course not. Um uh, many remain poorly paid, vulnerable to injury, dependent on dodgy bosses. Um, and winning over some of this cohort is an electoral necessity. So um, so Labor needs to win them over. But in 2021, the average union member is a tertiary-educated female teacher or nurse, and the most economically disadvantaged group in Australian society is single mums on welfare. Clinging the status nostalgically to the hard hat and steel cap boots wearing working man of the 20th century warps one's sense of who is now the most deserving of political favour. So uh, that sort of catches up with what you were saying. Yeah. yeah. So, um, well, just that Perrottet picture with him in the bar drinking the beer, trying to do the scomo, I'm a man of the people, I go to the pub drinking beer, wouldn't surprise me if the first time he's ever been in the pub, like with six kids, hardline Catholic, workaholic, no doubt, all the rest of it, like that guy would be. Workaholic because he doesn't want to be at home with the six kids. <laughs> uh, so he's looked at that image, like these politicians trying to build themselves up as, as the working man, but... Um, it's an interesting conundrum, isn't it, that there's this shift where uh, if you were to look at a well-educated white collar in a city suburban you, you, who's, who's not particularly wealthy yet, you mm. know, then they're probably going to vote Labor. Mm. Um, once they've accumulated wealth, they'll then swap to the, <laughs> to the Liberals. Um, and, but yeah, if you look at a roughest guts guy in a, in a fluoro vest, uh, you don't know what he's going to vote because he could be driving a $150,000 land cruiser with a boat and a shed and a whole bunch of other things. Like mm. he could be doing really well for himself and considers himself a small businessman and, and the Liberal Party is his home. Um, mm. and I don't think Labor's worked out any of this stuff yet. The Liberals have 
worked it out to mm. some extent. They've stole like, like give John Locked Howard something. It. Howard stole that as Howard Battlers. Yes. Howard grabbed them. Yeah. And the Labor's been trying to counter that ever since. Yeah. Yeah. And given the that statistic on the last election, Labor yeah. certainly failed to connect with that group of I of, thought yeah, I mean, last election, uh, mm. Work Choices was the last major win I think they mm. had. Mm. Yes. Yes. So, um, so yeah, so that was that. Um, so we can't just abandon them? We'd need the numbers. We've got to tell a story that resonates with these people. So... Mm. Um, uh, I think the biggest... The biggest driver at the moment, the biggest hole that I see is the coalition have a story of mining jobs mm. Mm. and Labor and the Greens just do not, there's a lot of scaremongering about the loss of uh, rural jobs mm. and so Labor and the, and the Greens need to come up with a, this is our plan for uh, regional Australia this is what we're going to replace mining with, this is the future, jump on board, get on with us, and we will create a new economy that's not based on digging shit out of the ground that is the future. Yeah, but people could look at past experience with the auto workers and whatever else that we had with when we had manufacturing or mm-hmm. and, and, well, we're not going to support the car industry, but... There'll be other work for you, don't worry. And then mm. there really wasn't the work there. Yeah, yeah. but rather no. than making a promise of there'll be yeah. other work for you, don't worry, yep. is this is the work. Yes. We are going to fund it. This is the infrastructure we're going to put in place. Because people would be rightfully distrustful and yeah. say you abandoned us for globalisation. Essentially, that's mm. what the Tony Blair, the third way, the you know, and, mm. and the left jumped onto globalisation and said well, we'll reskill our low-skilled people and find them other jobs to do coding software and making computer games, mm. and none of that happened. So people are going, well, I want to hang on for dear life to this coal job because I don't believe you. I don't yeah. believe you for a second that you're going to find me an alternative mm. solar farm to work on. Like so, they and, and so there's the I don't trust you about the alternative job, and there's also... We've mentioned before about uh, Hillary and the deplorables, mm-hmm. yeah. where there's this looking down the nose of people who are uneducated and have these very provoke, uh, parochial views or whatever, and considering them deplorables. So mm. the same with so, Brexit. Mm. You know, if if you're worried about immigration, if you're worried mm. about people coming in and stealing your job, mm. then you're a racist. Yes. Yeah. Rather than I understand your fears. Mm. They're misplaced, and this is why, but mm. not just treating people as social pariahs because they are afraid. Mm. Yep. And are we doing that here? Um, good point. So nobody's come out from the Labor side and said, you guys are a bunch of deplorables. Mm. Oh, I but, don't know. I, I got the I, feeling the Greens, with their trip up north at the yeah, last election. Yeah, that's... T- was was a big up yours to yes. the to the mining communities. Yes. And certainly I, I so I wouldn't say a leader of the Labour Party has referred to 
the uneducated class as deplorables. Mm. But maybe there's enough rub-off of other people mm-hmm. saying who are educated and saying, well, if you don't believe in climate change by now, you're a friggin' idiot. Like, yeah. like it would be enough of just that class, mm. which is what the quarterly essay says, is that the educated left would never diss a black person, a gay person, um, a disabled person, but a dumb hick from the regions who doesn't believe in climate change, well, they're a dumb hick from the regions who don't believe in climate change. They'd be much more readily willing to insult them. So, Mm. eh, um, I don't know. Mm. I saw a, a thing from UQ talking about biodiesel mm. and said we could grow our diesel onshore. Right. We could do this in the regions. We could literally turn the coal mining areas right. into large farms of biodiesel. Right. Which would employ all these workers. It's an engineering job. Mm. Uh, it's it's a similar skill set. Mm. I mean, it's, not, it's not a direct replacement. But effectively, we're still creating fuel. We're still, yeah, it's very much the same. It's a primary industry. Uh, Yeah, I think there are the jobs Mm. there to swap those coal miners over into. But I fully understand that they don't trust uh, the government. And I think we we need to put our money where our mouths are Mm. and Mm. say this is the future, we are going to invest heavily in it, this is not just a there will be jobs, Mm. a Mm. vague promise, Mm. but some serious, right, this is what we see as our strategy, this is the investment we're going to make, these are the commitments. Mm. Now the question is, is it a core commitment or a non-core commitment? Mm. Mm. And, you know, the problem is if, uh, if all the renewables is being done by private enterprise, then it's hard for a government to guarantee where any of this is going to happen. Yeah. So I, th- I think they, they've got to grab guys like Twiggy Forrest with his hydrogen thing or plant or whatever and say to some district, well, it's going to be right here. That's where it's going. Mm-hmm. You move off there, you come into here. So, yeah, people need to see some specifics because they rightfully don't trust this yeah. magical job that's going to appear. Mm. Mm. And if we get in correctly at the mm. base level, we can tax it so that all the profits aren't going to a big multinational mm. offshore. And then they just need to say to people, ScoMo is a bullshit artist. He is yes. not one of you. He is actually screwing you over. He's taking money from you and and your tribe and he's given it to those assholes. Um, in the finance world and, and wherever. So don't believe what he's saying. He's not on your side. Not yeah. only is he university educated, but mm. it was a free university education. Was it for him? Yes. Almost certainly. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that people need to understand you can't trust him. He's, he's not one of you. He's just a bullshitter. Mm. Don't fall for it. Here's what he's done. Um yeah, but he but, doesn't but, hold the hose. No, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But Labor just doesn't want to try and sell a story. It's all small target. Yeah. As much as you say about mm. the mad monk and the budgie smugglers, at least he did hold the hose. Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's see in the chat room. Um, uh, 
it's too hard for me to read them in. But good on you, Bronwyn, and everyone in there who's going for all of those commentary. So, yeah, that's still, we've mentioned it before. We've talked about the deplorables a lot, and it's obviously still a Labor problem based on those statistics on the 20 seats at the bottom end and top end of, of university education and the way they went for and against Labor. That's mm. a real concern that it happened. With so the pandemic, like there's a small chance that there's been more division again. Mm. Um, one of my uncles, who shall rename, <laughs> remain nameless, mm -hmm. has been a One Nation voter for many years. Right. Uh, but he also um, loves the Rabbitohs. And <laughs> it seems and, like and, a long and, bow, but no, no, no. hang in there. No, right? I'm, I'm with you here. So be, he lives in Queensland. Elbow he got to the... see... He got to see his beloved Rabbitohs obviously lose, but play a grand final here in Brisbane. And I will be looking forward to my next interaction with him to basically find out if with all this COVID, because he's quite a sensible man apart from his normal political leanings oh. and all this COVID stuff, he probably would have got the shits with it. And then with that extra, like, um, so here's what I'm trying to say is that, a uh, theme of xenophobia around yeah. one of my uncles. Yes. Which I think might have translated around the border controls, so keeping yes. us safe, keeping the people out, and then getting to watch the Rabbitohs. He might now be a Labor voter. Right, because Palaszczuk was a pretty <laughs> xenophobic <laughs> about Southerners. Just, she was keeping our borders safe. <laughs> She's appealed to his xenophobic tendencies. I just that's, think that's, there Labor might be... <laughs> Labor just needs to be more xenophobic. Well, I just think happening? there might be a little bit more, um, right. a little bit more division, and it's not, it's not right. may, maybe not as simple as this anymore. Right. Maybe. Right. I'm an optimist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, well, hang on, wasn't it? Labor had the Pacific solution. Uh, Labor has been fair, not not quite, but almost as bad as the Liberals in terms of border control. Uh, in what what's Labor said about water control? Oh, historically. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 that, yeah. In terms of um, boat people and stuff, yeah. yeah, not a yeah, not not a piece of paper between them. Yeah, very, yeah, yeah, because they weren't prepared to argue. Well, maybe they just believed it as well. But like with all issues, it just seems to be a small target where they didn't want to. Mm. Well, I, I think um, it was they couldn't sell it, so they didn't want to fight it. Very. Uh, yeah, it was a gut reaction for a lot of people, stopping mm. the immigrants, mm. stopping the boat people. Mm. Mm. Yep. It, it wasn't a thought out. And I'm sure Labor went, you know what, we're not going to be able to persuade people on this one. Let's just mm. roll over because we're just going to lose votes and we're not going to pick any up. Mm. So it's, it's a vote loser, so we're out of here when it comes to this argument. Yep. Essentially. Mm. Um. Tough times for Labor ahead. Um, but if they could just sell a story, mm. it would be easy. Mm. Okay, just uh, – sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say there's one really great thing about Western Australia and that's the Rupert doesn't own the paper there. Right. <laughs> and they really love Mark. Right. And they're – yeah, so I think um, Labor could do well there. Right. Okay. Maybe we could do well there. They could do well enough there that mm -hmm. the rest of the country doesn't matter. 
That would be refreshing, a newspaper not run by. Yes. You know, you, when you get it, mm. you're like, I'm reading the news. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it's Without, such a stark contrast. Yes. You're just like, yeah. Mm. I mean, I've been subscribed to the Korean the Mail and the Australian. I read the Guardian. I read ABC News. You almost burst out laughing reading the Murdoch stuff. <laughs> just look at the headlines. I read Spectator as well and uh, New York Times. Like, but honestly, you nearly burst out laughing. Just, uh, you know, there's a disaster in New South Wales with with um, Gladys, and we just get a headline trying to poke something at Palaszczuk because she announced herself as the Olympics minister or something simple. Like, they're just so detached from the reality. It mm. is a joke. But um, conversely, did you hear about? The mega battery fire in New South Wales. No. So there's a. You remember the South Australia battery? Yes. There's another one being built in New South Wales, right. and one of the battery packs caught fire. Right. Major fire. None of the national papers. Never saw anything about it. Yeah. No. It's like. Wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you'd think that the Murdoch press would have picked up and run with that. Mm. No, I didn't see it. No, I was shocked. Mm. mm. So what's also happened with Murdoch is they've done a 180 on climate change. Mm. I, <laughs> it's such an astounding 180. The Courier-Mail and all Murdoch papers during the week had this sort of six-page lift-out wraparound of the normal paper, which was essentially, well, of course climate change is real and it's man-made and, and we need to do stuff about it and... You know, zero emissions by 2050, of course. And, and But did they say how they were getting to zero emissions? Uh, well, I think from memory they really liked the Twiggy Forest hydrogen thing. So I think so, that was one of them. So but, two things I heard. Hmm. One is carbon capture and storage. Yes. And the hmm. other one is hydrogen is great. Yes. But it's blue hydrogen, not green hydrogen. Right. What's that mean? And, and the difference is green hydrogen is you take your renewable energy when you're not using it. Yes. So when the sun is mm. shining but mm. people aren't using their air conditioners or when the wind is blowing but nobody's got their TVs on or whatever yeah. mm. and you crack water, you mm. split water into hydrogen and oxygen and that's how you get your hydrogen. Yep. Blue uh, hydrogen, you take fossil fuels. Right, gas. And, and yeah. you put it through a chemical reaction yep. uh, with more fossil fuels powering that reaction. Mm. And at the end of it, you get hydrogen that's been created by fossil fuels. Yes. Yep. So you can create the hydrogen either renewable energy or fossil fuel energy. And at the yeah. moment, mm. blue hydrogen is cheaper than green hydrogen. Right. Yep. So, yeah. So anyway, I think who knows what's going on with Murdoch and who knows what it, where it will end up, but there's just this amazing 180 where – Essentially, it's it seems to me that the rest of the world is really saying to Australia, we're going to stop dealing with you. Like when it comes to trade agreements with the EU, until you guys get your emissions targets where we want them, you're mm. becoming a bit of a pariah state. Mm -hmm. So I think from that point of view, they've come to the party, we have to do something. And um, I, I think that's part of – it's a little bit like – South Africa with a 
sanctions and apartheid, like eventually the rest of the world shamed them into it to some yes. extent. Like I think we've almost reached that point where business leaders are now saying, okay, I guess we have to do it because if we want to sell our shit to the EU and places like that mm-hmm. and the noises Biden's making, it's time for us to come on board, it seems to be. Mm. Well, uh, my, my understanding is it's just one step. Yeah, yeah, and it's all talk and it's obviously going to be very favourable of large um, ventures, the sort of thing that Twiggy Forest and others would want to do, large centralised ventures. So, um, yeah, well, don't trust him for a minute as being genuine in it and he could be trying to obscure things to bring about a blue um, hydrogen rather than a green one wouldn't surprise in the least. But in any event, still a turnaround just to acknowledge uh, actually, yeah, it is man made and yeah, we need zero emissions and they were nowhere but, near that before. But but mm. I think this is just this mm. is the game plan. Yes. Is is fight every step yes. in your rearward action. Yes. Until you've sweated all your assets as much as you can. Yes. You've dug as much coal out of the ground as you possibly can. Yep. And and fight every step of the way back. Yes. Yep. So um so just how much time we got? We got a little, just a little bit longer? Yeah. You're okay? You're all good? Not, not rushing away? Um, while we're still on that sort of climate change thing, so just climate change acceptance. So the Essential Report came out today, so you wouldn't have seen this before, but the question was of Australians, um, do you believe there's fairly conclusive evidence that climate change is happening and is caused by human activity or... Do you believe that the evidence is still not in and we may just be witnessing a normal fluctuation in the Earth's climate, mm. which happens from time to time? So, dear listener, uh, climate change is happening and is caused by human activity, 59%, as opposed to we are just witnessing a normal fluctuation in the Earth's climate, 30%. That's not good. No. No. <laughs> Don't know is eleven percent. That's a yeah. That's not good. Um, but you know what? Like I ran through it in our climate change episode, and none of that stuff you will read in newspapers no. or magazines. You have to buy a book or yes. listen to a podcast. You actually have to read a proper book or a or some long form podcast to get that information. Mm. You don't get it in a newspaper or a magazine article. No. So um, so mm. once you see it, it's obvious. Um, I think all you need to do is read the um, is it the Exxon papers from the early 80s. Yeah. So there's the Exxon scientists or the Shell, one of the right. huge oil companies. Yes. That we're going, climate change is real. We need to do something about this. Yes. And it, by the time we got to the executives, they decided what they were going to do about it, which was deny it yes, uh, and pretend that it didn't happen. Mm. And then cook the books. And then mm. cook the books. And, but, ta- and take Arthur Anderson down with them. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But it was the whole, uh, you know, the scientists themselves working for the oil companies. Mm. So it's not that science isn't settled. Mm. The scientists working for these companies 30, 40 years ago knew that this was happening. Mm. This is just muddying the waters. Mm. But, you know, what I presented in that podcast, I mean, you've heard everything 
newspaper I, I access, none of that was in there. I had to go and buy a book mm. and read about it. So, or a long form podcast of some sort would probably do it somewhere. I, I yeah. still recommend mm. UQ did uh, what's called Denial 101X, mm-hmm. which is a short, free course run by the university, mm. uh, which is. Uh, how do we know that the Earth's climate is changing? How do we know that humans are causing it? And why do people deny that it's true? And it's it, as well, it's the psychology. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it does talk about how we know that it, it's changing and how we know it's us. Mm. But what's really interesting is the political reasoning behind. Yes. The psychological reasoning the tribal behind. Tribal allegiances. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. Speaking of tribal allegiances, just in the breakdown of that... Uh, that 30% who said we're just watching uh, normal fluctuations, um, the older you are, the more likely you are to think that. And also, if you're a coalition voter, the more likely you are to think that. So mm. uh, 39% of coalition voters think that it's just normal cyclical warming of the earth. Only 23% of Labor, only 15% of Greens Fifteen percent of Greens think that. Wow, it's a worry, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm. I got a great phone call while I was in quarantine. Uh, mm. My friend's mum rang me. She's just like had enough <laughs> of of little action. All right. So, and her, um, she lives in um, for your listeners. She lives in the neighbouring suburb of Barden, which is a mm. really beauty, beautiful, mm. leafy suburb. Mm. So, on Thursday, we're meeting for coffee, and we're going to start an interest group. And then we're just going to try, I don't know, plant trees. We don't actually know what we're going to do yet, but we are just got to start doing something and then hopefully build build Very momentum. Good. Very good. Yeah. There might be a, a tree uh, group it, already. I wouldn't even think so. Yes. Yeah. It might be even just I've, – I've Googled it. I haven't found anyone mm. specifically for Barden, but maybe yeah. in neighbouring There areas. is for the Gap. Is there? Yes. If she wants to go to Taylor Range tomorrow, Wednesday night at 7.30, there's a meeting of sort of – Gap people for doing that sort of stuff. Cool. There you go. It's close enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I live in the gap, so if she plants more trees and makes it beautiful. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or, or there'll be people who know about stuff in Baden. So Exactly. You know, so that's perfect. Thanks. That's good. Um, addressing climate change. Are we doing enough? Are we doing too much? Or not, <laughs> not doing enough? Um, do you think Australia is doing enough? Not enough or too much to address climate change. Not doing enough, 42%. Doing enough, 31%. Doing too much, 15%. So either doing enough or doing... How can doing fuck all be doing too much? I mean, seriously. So either doing enough or doing too much is 46% as opposed to not doing enough, 42%. More people think we're doing either enough or too much than not enough. <laughs> Who is the more male and females fairly even? Obviously, young people are saying not doing enough, I think. Or, but they're also saying doing too much. Uh, younger people... 18 to 34 group, doing too much, 19%, whereas the 55-year age group are saying 
doing too much is only 9%. That's weird. So the younger you are, the more likely you are to say doing too much. Hmm. And of course, uh, oh, now it's getting just bizarre. Green. <laughs> Greens. Green voters. Doing too much, 18%. <laughs> And doing enough, 17%. So if Greens vote is 35%, either doing enough or not. Oh, I, I reckon some of these people are just trolling them. Saying, they're just, they're Greens just, voters. They're just pulling our leg now. I apologise, dear listener, for presenting this, this surely bullshit study from the Central Poll because that's just wacky. Oh, God, I hate not. That's just, that's just wacky. <laughs> Speaking of wacky, Keith Pitt. Resources Minister, Mm -hmm. he wants Australia, the government, to provide a $250 billion loan facility for the mining sector in return for a commitment to net zero. A $250 billion loan. So... um, For where they couldn't get a private loan because those political advocate uh, activists are forcing banks not to lend money. Correct. Banks are not mm. lending to fossil fuel companies anymore. It, so, it's nothing to do with the fact that fossil fuel is actually not economically viable and the investors are worried they won't get their money back. It's no, all those political yes. activists. And the free market capitalists of the coalition mm. want to tell um, the market what to do. Mm. Yes. So $250 billion is about one-eighth of Australia's GDP. Um uh, Pitt's office was unable to tell Crikey how it came up with the $250 billion figure and we asked Nationals leader Barnaby Joyce to explain, but he said it's a matter for Pitt. Mm. Is that Pitt the younger? Yes. Um, I, I had yeah. a friend who commented on the... Um, I can't remember which particular scandal it was, but um, he said he was unimpressed by the way it had worked, and I said it worked perfectly because the LNP's aim is to transfer um, public funds into the pockets of their rich mates, their party donors, and in that case it worked perfectly well. It did what it was supposed to do. They're the greatest Mm. socialists. Yes. Mm. Nationals, yeah. So so David Littleproud has demanded the banking system be destabilised by withdrawing deposit guarantees for banks that refuse to fund coal projects. And Matt Canavan wants every Australian mortgage holder to pay what would be in effect a coal tax by locking out banks that refuse to invest in coal, thus thus driving up interest rates. These guys are completely nuts. Yes. Um, There you go. That's part of that deplorables thing where we talk about. Guilty. But they are nuts. <laughs> they are. What can you do when they are? They are. And how come, like, that's not going to suit mortgage holders or coal workers, is it? Oh, it's just, Surely not. These are just I, I, crazy I, thought bubbles from some maniacs who we've actually got in charge of stuff. This is Resources Minister Keith Pitt. I, I, really frightening. I, I, it, it's Agricultural Minister David Littleproud. These mm. are ministers. It's It's the politicians who are so keen to prop up a single industry yes. in their electorates yes. rather than working on diversity. Yes. 
So about $250 billion, um, according to the Reserve Bank in, uh, from three years ago, the current level of replacement capital expenditure, that is how much investment is needed to continue to dig up the same amount as currently being produced, is around $10 billion for a five-year period. So Pitt's quarter trillion facility would guarantee 125 years of replacement investment in both coal and iron ore on current spending levels. 125 years of replacement investment. It's just completely nuts. But these guys are in charge. Goodness me. So, um, Is this Matt appearance of photographs with some cold dust sprinkled on my face so I look like a miner? That's yes, it. Yeah. that's it. With a fluoro vest on. <laughs> that's it. Yep. Uh, just quickly, while we're still on energy uh, and climate and stuff, nuclear. So... A couple of polls have come out. Surely you mean nuclear. 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 <laughs> nuclear. <laughs> Question um, from news poll. <laughs> the US or UK will supply the nuclear propulsion system to power the submarines and Australia is not committed to developing a homegrown nuclear industry. In the future, do you think Australia should develop its own domestic civil nuclear industry? including new nuclear power stations in Australia to generate electricity. Um, definitely 25%. Should consider 36%. No, 27%. Don't know, 12 So either definitely or should consider was 61%. That's a lot of people in favour of nuclear. There was another poll out by Essential, who I now don't trust at all based on what we were talking about before, <laughs> uh, to what extent do you support or oppose Australia's developing nuclear power plants for the generation of electricity? And total support was 50%. Opposition was 32%. Unsure, 18%. So still quite supportive of nuclear energy. Um, it'd be great to put some of these people to a test as to their actual knowledge. Mm. Um Article from The Spectator I'll put in the show notes, which I'm actually only just providing to the Patreons these days. So if you want the full show notes, you have to become a Patreon. So um, article from The Spectator saying we need to have nuclear. But I came across a very interesting article by Bob Carr, former New South Wales Premier and former Federal Foreign Minister. So talking about nuclear, this is good. Um, the industry, the nuclear industry, lacks a single example in a Western country of a new power plant being built remotely on time and budget. According to World Nuclear Industry Status Report, 94 plants were to come online across the next decade, but 98 get decommissioned. Mm. Yet 48 of those to be built are to be in China. Remove them and that leaves 46 coming online, with the stubborn fact that 98 are being decommissioned in the rest of the world. So excluding China, 46 coming, 98 going. In 2019, for the first time, renewable sources excluding hydro generated more power than nuclear. Um, in Australia, nuclear attracts not the remotest investor interest. If nuclear were an option, a merchant bank or superannuation fund might be manoeuvring to own the space. They might have formed a consortium with a miner and a construction company or two with a brace of lobbyists at work. It's not happening. The contrast with the surge to renewables is stark. 
Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon-Brooks are prepared to put their own funds into a vast solar farm in the Northern Territory and Forrest to make a huge commitment to hydrogen. There is no single investor with a comparable zeal for nuclear power, either high net worth, individual or institution. So he says, I argued for a pro-nuclear case within the Labor Party and scorned what I saw as the left's phobia against the nuclear option. And this is Bob Carr saying, I thought coal more destructive and nuclear the bridge to the era of new renewables. But now it's clear that nuclear is lumbering, subject to breakdowns, and is cripplingly expensive. Um, new renewable sources such as wind and solar increased by 184 gigawatts. Nuclear only grew by 2.4. Number of reactors has barely changed since the 80s. Um, France was the poster child. Here's an interesting bit. Poor reliability plagues the fleet. This is a fleet of nuclear uh, reactors. On any day, at least four plants are at zero output because of technical failures. The average per plant is a month per year at zero production. So one of the great arguments for nuclear is it's reliable, consistent baseload energy. But in France... The average per plant is a month per year at zero production. Yeah, but there is one cost that he hasn't factored in. Mm. <laughs> uh, uranium for nuclear weapons. Right. That's the main reason for running nuclear power stations. Ah, to generate the uranium for... Yeah. Right. Uh, good point. That, okay. that's, that's, that the where major, get, that's where you get it from. That's the major reason for running um, nuclear oh, power plants. Is that right? Yeah. As a waste material from the nuclear, from the no other way. So the material once it's gone through the reactor core yes. um, is then perfect as a nuclear weapon. Is as a weapon. more suitable to be put into weapons. There you go. Not even a Scandinavian efficiency can provide a happy pro-nuclear narrative. Finland became the first country in Western Europe to order a new nuclear reactor since 1988, but it's running 13 years late plagued with management and quality control issues, bankruptcies and investor withdrawals. Who could have the faintest confidence that Australia could throw up a nuclear reactor with more panache um, than the Finns? Um, doing big, complex projects is hardly an Australian competitive edge. Uh, think of the submarines contract. So they were good. I didn't know that about the unreliability of nuclear. Uh, um, I knew it's high cost and whatnot, but there you go. Yeah, so it's it's. My understanding is it doesn't financially weigh in, mm. and the real reason for building and keeping the power plants running is most of the countries with a nuclear reactor mm. also have nuclear weapons. There you go. Mm. Right. Well, we've well and truly kept you out of the Shark Tank show. So, <laughs> for another week. I'll be on my own next week. I'm going to talk about Less is More by Jason Hickel, how degrowth will save the world, excellent history of capitalism and economics. Really, part of understanding the world is understanding political systems and power and economics and climate, and he's got a lot of it all wrapped up into a neat little theory and mm. package. So... So that's the plan for next week and then the panel two weeks after that. Still waiting to hear on the court case. Um, don't know, haven't had a decision yet. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, if you're anywhere 
You got any chance of being in Noosa on the 30th? Um, think about that as an interesting experience. Um, we've got to apply for a protest permit. So hopefully that is smooth sailing. I mean, who wouldn't want a bunch of satanic protesters in Hastings Street on a Sunday night? Is it bring your own goat? So I don't know that we'll be having goats. Um, we could bless a goat, I suppose. But, um, yeah, so anyway, keep that in mind. Let us know if you're going to go. All right, well, until then... Um, Talk to you next week. Bye for now. Thanks. Good night. And there's a good night from him. Well, you probably wonder what uh, politicians do on uh, Christmas Eve. Well, it, when it's drought, big cattle. Now, you don't have to convince me that the climate's not changing. It is changing. And my problem's always been whether you believe a new tax is going to change it back. Look, I just don't want the government anymore in my life. I'm sick of the government being in my life. You know, and the other thing is I think we've got to acknowledge is, you know, there's a higher authority that's beyond our comprehension and right up there in the sky. Unless we understand uh, that that's got to be respected, then we're just fools and we're going to get nailed. <laughs>